Psalm 103 of David. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. He forgives all of your iniquity and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. And who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses and His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, I'm indebted to Derek Kidner and Tim Keller and their thoughts on this psalm, so I need to give credit where credit's due. I don't know about you, but I love these summer blockbuster movies. And I, I can remember ones that stuck out to my mind in particular, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You remember those series with Harrison Ford? Man, I love those movies. And I love the action-adventure movies. But often those action-adventure movies that I like have kind of these one-dimensional characters, right? They're the tough guy who kind of attacks every problem with violence, Right? And he saves the damsel in distress. It's kind of the same plot in every movie, but I don't know why it's with guys that we just, you know, the next action-adventure movie that comes out, same story, but we still go and pay the money to go see it, right? But it's, they're kind of a one-dimensional character, aren't they? And I think sometimes that view of our culture carries over to, to understanding God as well, that God seems to be this one-dimensional character. Uh, and if you would look at God in that way, you could fill in the blank, for instance. What would be some one-dimensional views of God, if you will? Well, He's that great nebulous force of energy that's in the trees and in the wind. Or, or maybe He's like that great benevolent grandfather in the sky who smells like Old Spice and who just kind of lovingly watches the kids run by. Or He's like the Santa Claus God, you know, who gives you what you want or you need. Or He's just a wonderful, loving friend. Or He's this stern judge. And I think that Many people's views of God are flat, and they choose whichever God kind of suits their particular way or variety. They kind of latch on to a metaphor that symbolizes who God is, like He's the grandfather in the sky or the stern judge or whatever. And when you choose to believe in God in that particular way, when you try to flatten God into this one-dimensional image or character, you end up, end up with a one-dimensional God, Right? And, there, and it's hard for you to have really any personal engagement with a one-dimensional God. So I think our culture, in many ways, tends to view God in one-dimensional ways. And I think even that we tend to view God's love in often one-dimensional ways. 
But we know how, what the Bible tells us about God, doesn't it? That He's infinite, right? He's so complex. That even His love is so infinite and complex and even exquisite, right? That He is a Father to us. He's a friend to us. What does the Bible tell us about who God is in His character? He's a Father. He's a friend. He's a judge. He's a king. He's a ruler, right? He's a creator. He's a sustainer. He's all of those things. But here's the deal. When you, when you choose one of those things in favor of another, well, I like it that God is my friend. Or I, well, I like it that God is just. Or, oh, I like it that He's a loving God who dares not judge anyone. Or somebody who said, oh, no, no, no. He is a judging God. He's holy. And you must obey Him at all costs or He will smite you, right? So if you try to flatten God out, you can't have a relationship with a God like that when He's one-dimensional. It's kind of like that book, Flat Stanley. Remember that book reading uh, growing up as a kid, Flat Stanley? I think it was in the 60s when that book came out where he was in his bed and the billboard fell on him and he became flat. And there was so much more to this little boy than just Flat Stanley, right? There's so much more to his character and who he was. Now, our biblical God is infinitely complex and His Word reveals to us just how infinite, just how precious, just how powerful and complex He is in His love for us. And Psalm 103 shows us some astounding, breathtaking things about God as our Father and His astounding love for us as a Father. So this morning we're going to focus just on that. Again, there's so much to see in Psalm 103. Maybe I'll do a series on Psalm 103. I think I could at least mine four sermons out of Psalm 103. But this morning we're going to kind of look at the meat of the psalm, verses 8 through 18. And I want to ask two questions of the psalm this morning. Two questions. The first question is this, if you're taking notes. What does it mean that God is a father to us? What does it mean that God is a father to us? And secondly, how do we respond to that? Once we see what Psalm 103 tells us about how God is a father to us, how do we respond to that? Well, firstly, what does it mean that God is my father? Well, my hope this morning is that you're going to learn something that's so critically important about the fact that God is a father that you're going to have to respond. You're going to have to respond to his word if you really want to be able to relate to him. Okay, that's my prayer for us this morning. So you're going to have to respond to this. So there's three things that we're going to see about God and his character as a father this morning. The first thing is this, is that the absolute safety we find in God as a father. Absolute safety that we find in God as a father. The second thing that we'll see is the compassionate anger that we, we receive and we find in Him as God our Father. And then the second thing is the final home that we find in Him as God our Father. So absolute safety, compassionate anger, and our final home that we find in Him as God our Father. Absolute safety. Now what do I mean by this? Let's start in the middle of the psalm and then we'll kind of work back and forward a little bit. Kind of like the hub here. So verses 13 and 14 What does David tell us about God and his character as a father to us? Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, as a father, so there he's telling us the character of God here, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. Some of your versions say he, he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we're dust. Now I want you to notice, first of all, this, this deep emotion that God has for us. Now, it's not going to come across, it doesn't come across real well in our English translations. In fact, verse 13 translates, as a father shows, what is it the word it uses there? Most of your English translations would use what? Compassion, right? I think the King James Version and the New King James uses the word pities. Kind of not even really a great word to represent what he's 
trying to get across here. So many of our usions either land on the word compassion or pities, okay? And really, neither one of those words, compassion or pity, don't work so well here. Derek Kidner tells us that the Hebrew word here literally means a surprisingly, it's a surprising and deep emotional word. It literally means to be overwhelmingly in love with somebody. To be overwhelmingly in love with somebody. That's the sense of this word compassion here. And it tends to be used in the Old Testament, this word compassion, in the context of mothers. Now get this. We're talking about the fatherhood of God here, but this word compassion, as as the father shows compassion to his children, if you look up that word compassion, do a word search in the Old Testament, many times it's used in this context of mothers mothering their children, okay? And it's used in a lot of places. Two particular places that it's used in the same sense that it is here in Psalm 103. Two particular places I want to look at. Uh, One is Isaiah 49. And this is, I hope this helps you make sense of how God is a father to us. First place is Isaiah 49, 15. Here God and Isaiah is talking about God is speaking to his people, and he says this in Isaiah 49, 15. He says, Can a woman forget the baby nursing at her breast? Can she fail to have compassion on the child that is nursing from, from her? And God says, Yes, yeah, she might, the mother might forget the child, but then God goes on to say, But I will not forget you. Now, what does this mean here? Well, first of all, this com- word compassion is talking about an incredibly powerful, deep emotional love, an overwhelming love for something. And here in Isaiah 49, God has the boldness to identify this word compassion with a love that a mother has for an infant when she's nursing her baby, nursing her child. Now, don't think me crazy, but when Presley Ann nursed all of our children, there was something in me that was a little jealous. Guys were like, okay, where's he going with this? I was a little bit jealous. Not that I was, didn't have the ability to nurse. I'm not going there. But I was a little bit jealous in the sense that there's this bond between a mother and the child when they're nursing that child. And that's something that I would never be able to participate in. But I was a little bit jealous that there was just this precious bond that a mother has with its child when they're nursing, right? And that's the sense that David's using this word compassion here. It's the sense that Isaiah was using that word compassion. As a mother bonds with that child, has that connection, that community with that child, that communion with that child, that love. Another place that this very same word is used in regard to mother's love in the Old Testament. Remember in 1 Kings 3, it's 1 Kings 3.26, but you remember this famous story. This is in the reign of Solomon. And there was a woman who had an infant baby boy, and that baby boy dies in the middle of the night. And so in her despair and anger, this mother goes to another mother who's asleep and steals the child away from her, kidnaps the child away from, from the mother, right? Well, the next day, the true mother, the mother who had her baby kidnapped, she realizes what's happened and drags the mother who kidnapped her child into the court of King Solomon. And Solomon hears the dispute between the two of them. And after listening to their dispute, listening to the two ladies, the true mother and the mother who kidnapped the child, you know, how in the world is he going to be able to tell who's telling the truth? He comes up with a solution and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the child in half, right? And we're going to get, give one half to her and one half to you. What do you think, right? Well, we're told in 1 Kings 3 that the true mother, what, what happens? 1 Kings 3.26 says, The true mother, moved with compassion, said, Listen, I am the liar. The true mother says, I am the liar. She points to the kidnapper, kidnapper and says to the, to the false mother, Here, give her the child. 
Now, wow. You see what the true mother's doing here in front of the king? She's committing perjury right in front of the king, lying to the king, saying, that's the true mother. Give her the child. I've, she's lying right in front of King Solomon. Perjury, committing perjury, especially in front of the king, could almost be punishable by death. It was a capital offense. So this is what this meant here. Here was this mother love of this mother who was the true mother saying, no, no, here's, here's the mother. You give her the child. Because the true mother realizes what's going to happen. And so she's willing to literally sacrifice her life and give the child to the liar, to the thief, to save the child. And God has the audacity to say, that's the kind of love that I feel towards you. This word compassion. God's using this amazingly emotion, emotionally charged word to tell you of his love for you. And then it gets even better in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Why does God have this kind of powerful love towards his children? Look at verse 14. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. Now, if, you were to, if, I, if I were to ask you, after you've read verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 103, why does God love you? Why does God have that kind of emotionally charged love for you? What do you think many of us, our default answer would probably be? Well, God loves me in this way because I obey him, right? Or God loves me in this way because I fear him. God loves those who fear him, right? Well, look carefully at what the passage says. Now, this, uh, the Psalms are poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew, Hebrew, pro, blah, Hebrew poetry loves parallelism, okay? Parallelism means this in poetry. It gives you one idea, and then it puts on the same plane this other idea, and the two are synonymous for one another. That's parallelism in poetry. And so notice what 13 and 14, this parallelism here in this poetry, this, this psalm, he says, he puts fearing him and being his children on the same plane. They're, they end up being the same thing here. What does he say? Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Did you see that? Those who fear him are his children. Now, he's not saying he loves you because you fear him. No, he, he loves you according to verse 14. Why does he give the, the reason why he loves us? What does verse 14 say? Because you're a wreck. What does he say here? He says he has compassion on his children because they are what? The word is dust. They are dust. You see, dust is something, it's, it's a metaphor for something that's so common that it's worthless. It's a metaphor for being broken, for being worthless, for falling, being falling apart, for being sinful, for being flawed. And so we know from Scripture that God loves us when we're doing well, when we're doing good, trusting Him. We know from Scripture also that God loves us when we aren't doing so well, and we're doing poorly, He loves us. So what does that tell us? Does God love us based upon our performance doing good or, or not doing so good? No. Psalm 103 tells us He loves us because we are what? Dust. We're Shrek the sheep, if you were here last week. We're just dumb sheep. We're dust. And that's why he loves us. See, if you wrestle with this, you need to understand something. If you're parents, you know, you're, many of you parents are parents here, right? Many of you are grandparents. Many of you are not parents yet, but you are a child and have parents, right? You know, in, God, in parenting, God is so emotionally involved that it doesn't matter what his children do. You are completely safe. You are completely loved in his indissolvable loving commitment to you. Now, why does David bring this out in the context of God as Father? 
why doesn't he say this in the context of God as friend or God as judge or God as king or God as ruler? You see, if God said that I have this kind of love for you in the context of God as friend, think about this. You have friendships, right? And you have friends who can be extremely patient with you, right? Or you can be very patient with your friends, right? But say your friend continues to kind of diss you in life, right? Your friends continue to betray your trust. Your friends continue to injure you. They continue to hurt you. They continue to to tell your secrets to others. They continue to insult you. You know, if they keep spurning you and hurting you and injuring you over and over again as a friend, you've got to set some boundaries, right, to protect yourself because it hurts, right? Now, what, what if David said this in the context of God's overwhelming for you in the context of being a king, okay? Put it through the king context. You know, if you are a, a citizen of, of the kingdom and you have a king, right, and you disobey the king's law and you keep transgressing against the king and his laws and his kingdom, what's he going to do? The king is going to what? Punish you. He's going to lock you up. But here, Dave, David gives us this, this picture of God's father love in the context of being God as a father, God as a parent, this parent love, this father love context. And so for me, like, I am a... <laughs> I would say I'm a below average parent. Sometimes I get above average and sometimes I'm a good parent, but often if you sum it up, I'm probably a below average parent. So parents, think about this. When you have children and one of your kids is driving you crazy, it's one of your children who is just making really bad choices. You know, they're your worst son or daughter, if you will. What do you do as a parent? What do you do as a parent? If anything, you feel more parent love towards them, don't you? Children in here, you, you know, you're not married, you aren't parents yet. Is that you? Your pa- you know, you drive your parents nuts, but they still love you. Yeah? Parents, your heart goes out to that child, right? See, parents, you know, as soon as your child is born, as soon as you have a child, there's this amazing bond that happens. You know, I remember some folks telling me that before Preslane and I had Thomas, and I thought, you know, that's, you know, it's going to be special having a child and all that, but man... Once your child is born and you hold that child, there's just this bond. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, right? But this bond happens. You have this bond with your child. And it's a powerful bond, this parent-child bond. And no matter how your child acts for the rest of their life, you're never going to be happy until your child is happy. And so God has the audacity to say that the reason for that is because parents are made in His image. That's how He is. He is a father. He is saying, you, if you are in my kingdom, you are, you are my son or daughter, my true son or daughter. You are absolutely safe in my love, he's saying. Children, you are absolutely safe in my love. And the only place that you can find that kind of audacious love is with him. And so the second thing I want to see about God as father is not just the absolute safety we find in him as a father in his love but also the second thing i want to see about his father is that he has compassionate anger towards his children look at verse 8 with me he says the lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love he will not always chide some of your versions say accuse he will not always chide or accuse nor will he keep his anger forever he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities okay So what do we see here? Well, on the one hand, we see God, who is a father, whose anger is not a kind of payback anger. And I'll talk about this payback anger in a minute. So right off the bat in verse 10, 
we see that the anger here is not paying us back for our sins, right? It's not a tit-for-tat kind of anger. Think about it like this. Again, I admit that I am at best often a below-average parent, as I imagine many of us are. And one of your children, when one of your children comes to you and they inconvenience you or they hurt you or they frustrate you or they disobey you in one way, shape, or form, I imagine that many of us in our default mode, and I see this in myself, we pay them back with payback anger. Now, what do I mean when I say payback anger? Payback anger is when you try to scare your child straight. (laughs) It's when you try to emotionally beat your child up. It's when you try to basically pay that child back for how they've hurt or frustrated you or inconvenienced you, right? Anybody guilty of that? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) You know, you inconvenience me, I'll inconvenience you, right? You frustrate me, I'll frustrate you, right? You humiliate me, I'm going to humiliate you. You hurt my feelings, I'm going to hurt your feelings, right? It's this tit for tat. And you know, that, that kind of anger is poisonous in a family. That kind of anger as a parent never works. In fact, it will always poison your family. It's not productive, it's destructive, right? This payback anger. And the reason payback anger never works in a family is because our families are just images of God. Our parenthood as parents is just an image of God's parenthood. And God never to His children uses payback anger. On the other hand though, Scripture tells us that God does get angry, right? What kind, how does God get angry with us? Verse 9, what does it say? Verse 9 tells us that God will not harbor His anger forever. That means that God will harbor anger, right? does mean that God will get angry, but He won't have or harbor His anger forever. He will and He does get angry. You see, He's not a humanistic God. God's not a God who's just like Santa Claus in the sky or the grandpa in the sky who never gets angry. No, he's a God who does get angry, right? But he doesn't give us this payback anger. In fact, verse 8 tells us that God's anger is a, is a compassion, compassion-driven anger. It's slow. It's utterly, utter, utterly under his control. His compassion is permanent and his anger is temporary. See, God's anger, his compassionate anger here is deliberate. It has purpose to it. So I, I think there are two kinds of parenting styles. Actually, there are many more than two kinds of parenting styles. But for the sake of illustration, say there are two kinds of parents, parenting styles that can wreck or poison a child's life. The first one is this, the completely permissive parent. The completely permissive parents that they're so detached that they just let their children, they, they never get angry, right? They just kind of let their children run around and do whatever. They never lay down standards for their kids. They never engage or confront. They don't get angry. They just say, do what you want. And they really are neglecting their children. And then conversely, the antithesis to that, the flip side of that is the abusive parent. It's payback anger city, you know? Payback anger after anger. It's constant anger and confrontation and conflict. And see, here's the deal. Either the neglecting parent or the abusive parent can destroy that child. And that's because payback anger or no anger means that the child is not really being loved. See, if there's any semblance of love, if you truly love somebody, you're going to get angry with them, right? You're going to get, I mean, you see somebody hurting themselves, what do you do? You get angry, right? You react because you don't want to see them hurting themselves, right? You injure somebody, they're going to get angry at you. If you truly love somebody, if there is love in the midst of a relationship, there is going to be anger at times. There's a great book by a lady named 
Becky Pippert. She wrote an awesome book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. But she also wrote a great book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And listen to what Becky Pippert says about this. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Get this. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Then she goes on to quote this guy E.H. Gifford. He said, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates him in him, the drunkard, the liar, or the traitor. Then Pippert goes on and concludes, If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who's made them. You see, she says, God's wrath is not some cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So what does this mean? You see, if you're a parent, you're going to get angry, right? And if you don't get angry, if there's no anger whatsoever in you at your children, do you really love them? Are you loving them by indifference? But conversely, if your MO is payback anger, right, and you're just constantly paying back your child with payback anger, then you're not really loving your child very well either. You see, the anger that looks at our flaws, the anger from God, this compassionate anger that looks at our dustness, that anger that looks at us and, and sees our wrongness, our dustness, that God, God's compassionate anger, it's, it's real and it's emotional, but it's totally under control because it's not selfish. See, that's the heart of the Father towards His children. It's what we mentioned last week, when we looked at this in Hebrews last week, that Hebrews 12, where the Father disciplines. Remember this? Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that He loves, right? See, you and I desperately need compassionate anger from the Lord. If God didn't discipline us, if God didn't demonstrate compassionate anger to us, He would be the disinterested Father. He would be the grandfather. He would be the one-dimensional grandfather in the sky who just said, yeah, get along. It's okay. Do whatever you want. That's not the kind of God I could worship. That's not the kind of God that I could love and be comfortable with. We need a compassionate anger from the Father. And that's why the, the writer of Hebrews 12 he begins that section of saying the Lord disciplines his sons and daughters that he loves. You know how he, he begins that section? He says, don't despise the discipline of your father. Don't hate God for his discipline because the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. We need somebody who is going to be emotionally involved enough with us to get angry. And yet he does it without selfishness. God does it without no axe to grind. You see, it's not retribution that the Father's after. It's restoration. God, when He disciplines us, it's not retribution, is it? It's not payback anger. It's compassionate anger. And God longs for us to be restored. That's His compassionate anger that we need here in Psalm 103. Well, lastly, the third thing we see about God, God the Father is this. Is that His desire to bring us to our final home. His desire to bring us to our final home. For God to say that I'm Father means this. First of all, we saw that He is absolute safety. His compassion towards us. In His compassion, we find absolute safety. 
And then he says, in me and me alone, you are my, I am your wise guide and in me you will find this compassionate anger that I will discipline you and restore you because I love you. And then thirdly, what we see is the, that he says, I am your final home. Home is not going to be some building or place. He says, I am your final home. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 15. Let's see what this says. Verse 15 and 16, what does David say? As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more or remembers it no more. Now that last line in verse 16 seems a little bit mysterious, doesn't it? It does to me. Its place remembers it no more. That place that you grew up remembers you no more. What does he mean in verse 16? Maybe an illustration would help. Do you remember the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Isn't that great? love that movie, Christmas movie. It always seems like TNT plays it. That and the Christmas story nonstop, right? Starting on Thanksgiving. But in the, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you got Jimmy Stewart, right? See? Jimmy Stewart, who is uh, uh, George Bailey in the town of Bedford Falls. And you remember he has this horrible nightmare, this ultimate nightmare where he is sent back to Bedford Falls to his place where he grew up and he is remembered no more, right? Remember that? He's sent back to Bedford Falls and it's like he'd never existed, like he'd never been born. He goes to see his mother, right? And his mother says, who are you? I'm going to call the police on you. Get out of here. Doesn't even recognize him. Know who he is. You remember he goes to see his brother and his brother is dead Uh, and he wasn't there. Uh, George wasn't there to to help his brother. It's like he never existed. He goes to, the, uh, to see his wife. He goes to his own home, and his wife doesn't even know who he is, right? His home remembers him no more. Home. Home for us. What's home for you? Home is where you love, isn't it? Home is where it's safe for you, isn't it? It's a place where not only do you fit in, but home fits you, Right? It's where you're yourself. It's where you relax. It's where you put your chair where you want it, right? (laughs) It's where everything ought to be right and it's where everything is familiar to you. Everything that you want is right. And it would be a nightmare for us, right, if home, we go back to our home, we have, well, it'd be a big nightmare for us if we have no place to call home, right? But it's a nightmare for us to go back to our home, the place that's familiar to us, and we are, it remembers you no more. That's what verse 16 is saying. It's saying its place remembers him no more. It's a place, it's a man, it's a place without a home. What a nightmare. Now why would that be a nightmare? Why do we always long to go back where we are from, right? You ever done this? You go back, you've grown up, maybe you've moved to Roanoke, but you still you know, travel several hours to go back home. And by the, year, it's a multi, it's a, by the way, it's a multi-billion dollar industry a year for people to travel back home. It's interesting. They've, they've mapped out transportation, uh, you know, details and, and, and surveys, and, and people spend billions of dollars just to travel back home a year. Why do we long to go back home? Why does it frustrate us when we go back home and you go to your childhood house, you're turning the corner and you turn, and all of a sudden there's a shopping mall built on where they, you had your house? Ever happened to you before? Or you go back to see, hey, kids, this is my elementary school, and there's a shopping mall there. School's gone, right? Maybe, you, you know, the reason you, you like home, some of you sit in the same seat at Wellspring every week because it feels like home and you get frustrated when somebody's, oh, a visitor, oh, yeah, that's not my seat. It feels familiar to you, right? We, we want home, we like home. It feels familiar, it feels like it's the place where we're known. So why is it terrible to have a place that remembers you no more? We all have this sense of home, this longing for home. 
It's because it's the way you're wired. It's the way God has wired you to belong, to be part of the familiar, to to be part of a community, to be connected. And over and over again in this life, we go from house to house, home to home, trying to find the familiar. And we go back home and what do we find out? That our parents have died or our friends have died or divorced or your childhood home, home has become an elementary school or a shopping mall. Friends move on. You see, we all need a place. We all need a sense of home. And until you begin to realize that this longing in you for home, you know, you can spend all of your life looking for home here and home here. And you can spend all of your life working so hard to build your dream home. And then you build your dream home, and guess what? It doesn't satisfy you. You see, the only place where you're really going to find home is verse 17 of Psalm 103. What does he say? But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. You see, friends, it's the Lord's love that's the place called home. It's the Lord's love that is home. And it's the only place where you can go and He has to take you in. You see, it's the only place that it's going to truly feel familiar and it's going to be a home for an eternity. Get this. Do you remember in in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when Jesus was talking to His disciples and He says, I go and prepare a place for you. Remember this? Where? He says. I go and prepare a place for you in My Father's house where there are many rooms. You see, the final home that your heart's looking for is not in the heavenly mansion. The final home that you're looking for is in the Father's love. The absolute safety that you find in being in the Father's love, being His child. But you've got to realize something. Sit up and, and look at me. Seriously. You've got to hear this, folks. You've got to hear this. Being a child of God is not automatic. It's not. Being a child of God isn't automatic. Oh, I come to Wellspring. I'm a child of God. I grew up in the South. I'm a child of God. Yeah, everybody in the South is a Christian. No. Being a child of God is not automatic. This could be the best news you've ever heard before. Seriously. Being a child of God is not automatic. You can only be a child of God by entering into a relationship with God as your Father. It doesn't just happen. You're not born a child of God. I mean, guess... Technically, yes, all of creation is a child of God in the Creator sense. But as far as having that relationship with the Father, that can only come by you entering into a covenant, a contract, a relationship with Him. You see, you are either in the family or you're not. You're either in the family, you're not in the family, or you can come into His family. And that's something that you've got to know about yourself today. Am I in the family of God? Is He really... Is He really my Father? You see, how is it possible that God, the great King of the universe, can be your Father? How is it possible that the Judge of the universe, the Creator of the universe, can be your Father? How can He be a personal Father to you? I mean, we expect, right? We expect that God would constantly give us payback anger. We deserve God's tit-for-tat payback anger again and again. But you see, friends, you remember George Bailey? Well, that was just a story, right? It was just a movie, but it still represents a pretty real nightmare that he went back to his place, right? And his place knew him no more. What a nightmare, right? But the movie ended. It was over. 
get this. Hear this. There is an ultimate reality with Jesus. Someone who came and said this. Remember when Jesus said this? He said, Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place. The Son of Man has no place. Where was Jesus' home? He didn't really have one, did He? That's why He said that. I have no place. I don't have anywhere to lay down my head. He didn't really have a home. And, and on the cross, do you remember this? When Jesus was on the cross and He turned to God, every time Jesus turned to God and talked to, his, talked to God in the New Testament and in, in the Gospels, how did He address God? What term did He use? Father, didn't He? All again and again, as you see Jesus addressing God, He would say what? My Father. Our Father. Holy Father. Abba Father, right? With the exception of one time. You see, on the cross, what did Jesus say? Father? Father? What did He say? My God. My God. Why have You forsaken Me? You know what He's saying there? I have no place no more. I didn't have a place when I was here on earth, but now the Father of Heaven, I can't call Him Father anymore. I can only call Him my God. And I have no place. His place, Jesus' place, knew Him no more. The door of heaven was closed to Jesus. The fire was put out and the lights were turned off and God locked the door. This was the ultimate nightmare and Jesus was living in the midst of it instead of me having to live in the midst of it. See what you see that? Why? Why did Jesus lose the spirit of sonship so that I could have it? Why did Jesus lose the spirit of sonship so that you can become his son or his daughter? Why did he have a place that knew him no more so that we can have a place? You see, the door was closed to him on the cross so that we could have a final home with the Father. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Folks, you've got to do something with this. You can't just hear this and, uh, what are we going to have for lunch today? You can't just hear this and not do something with this. What do you do with this? You ask the Lord who can be your father. You say, God, I want to be accepted. I'm not sure that I'm a son or daughter of you. I, wanna be, I want you to be my father. I want you to bring me into your family because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. And this should drive you to amazement, friends, to wonder, to celebration, to worship. How does David begin Psalm 103? Look at the words to his psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not all of His benefits. Who is David talking to? Is he talking to God? No, God already knows this. Is he talking to you? No, look at the verbiage. Bless the Lord, your soul? Wellspring, bless the Lord? No, he's saying, bless the Lord, my soul. Why does David begin the psalm like that? You see, friends, all of our problems come to us because our souls don't know that we are a child of God. We forget. Some of you don't even know that. You're not even sure that you, your soul is a child of God. But many of us who are in relationship with the Lord, we forget, don't we? We've forgotten. We've forgotten. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. You see what he's doing? He's reminding himself of the truth of the gospel. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
And if you know that He absolutely loves you and that you are His child, that He is your Father, that he, you are absolutely safe in His love, that He gives His compassionate anger, that you have a final home with Him, if you really know that, then why do you have a problem when somebody criticizes you? If you really know that, why do you have a problem when, you, when you're rejected by someone or someone seems cold to you? Why do you have a problem when you're struggling with money, when you want to pour money after money into the dream home? Why? And the Father already knows your needs, right? See, David's saying, hey soul, I'm talking to you. Not letting the world tell him how his soul's doing. He's not letting others tell him by either their approval or their rejection how his soul's doing. He's not letting money tell him how his soul's doing. He's saying, listen, hey soul, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Here are the benefits that I have being in a relationship with God as my Father. And he goes on to say, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, God, so great is your steadfast love towards me. So great is your steadfast love. It's so great that you separate my sins as far as the east is from the west. You have moved, removed my transgressions from me. Lord, you show compassion on me as your child. You know, you know, you know me. You know that I'm dust. See, don't live your life like this isn't true, Psalm 103. That might be your problem is that you're living your life like Psalm 103 isn't true. Do you know the truth of Psalm 103? Do you know Him as your Father? Does your soul, beloved, know this? If it doesn't, then what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Surrender to Him. My prayer is that I'm going I'm to take a minute and I'm going to pray for us. And I pray that there would be many of you who would finally turn to the truth and your soul would be awakened to the truth that this is real. That He really is your Father and can be your Father if you would just submit to Him. Does your soul really know this? Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You that You are our Father. But there might very well be some in here who don't have You as their Father. They kind of thought that maybe that just came automatically with the, with the benefits of of coming to church or, or being an American or, or being raised in the South or having a grandmother who is a Christian or Lord, I pray that um, you would help us discern if we're really in relationship with you or not. I pray that, Lord, if, if there might be any here today who aren't, that, Lord, they would surrender their wills and their self to you and say, I've been longing and looking for a father all my life. And I I finally found that, that God, you really want to be my Father and that you will love me and I could be absolutely safe in your love and that I can find a final home with you and I need compassionate anger in my life because I've had lots of anger in my life that's been so poisonous and unhealthy. I've been abused or I've been neglected. Maybe I don't even know who my parents really are, but I want to know you as a true Father. I pray today that, that today would be, be the beginning of that relationship with their Father. Or for those of us who have forgotten, who our soul has forgotten, we've forgotten this truth, that you're our Father who loves us, that you're our Father who will not abandon us but has compassion and anger on us and who disciplines us and wants to restore us, not to wreck us, and that we're going to find the final home and belonging in you and not in people's approval or our, our money or our job or our security. Lord, remind us again. Help us to be, have a, a graceful discipline like David to 
begin to pray, bless the Lord in my soul, begin to preach the good news back to ourselves again, that we would drown out the lies of the world and the enemy. And once again, our heart would be filled with the promises of you as a father. Lord, we love you. We honor you. Help us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Listen.